Live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Budd, only on 640 Toronto. Good evening and welcome to the show. We're on the Road to Recovery. I'm Yona Budd, your host. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. You're on 640 Toronto. If you've never been on the show before, you've never heard us or listened in, what we do is we talk about stuff that you know we think makes a difference in helping people understand what it means to get on the other side of some difficult times, perhaps some uh, mental health issues, uh, perhaps some substance abuse issues, perhaps just life issues, just you know, having enough of a day where you just want to reach out and talk to somebody. That's what we're here for. And you're able to do that and uh, share with each other. And hopefully it makes a bit of a difference for you and someone else that's listening. You know, I, I read an article not earlier this week on, May the, on, on the 13th of May, uh, and I, I just, it freaked me out. So I'm going to share it with you. It's a short segment where, but I, I'm going to freak, it freaks me out a little bit. It, the, the title, it's titled, when is, when is mental health untreatable? An expert panel says there are no fixed rules for that. So where this is going is give you the context. So there's this concept of medical assistance in dying called MAID. Uh, in Canada, medical assistance in dying for those that are suffering from, you know, horrific physical ailments that are incurable, where their quality of life is uh, never going to change. They're in constant pain. They really have uh, no real uh, act of, uh, of living in terms of maybe not breathing on their own, not, not conscious of where they are or who's around them. People who are coming to the end of their life, perhaps people who are terminal and want to leave this world on their terms i kind of like that right god forbid you have a terminal disease and you know you've got three months to live you want to decide how to do that And when you're feeling like it's time to check out you want to check out i think maybe when your time comes and you can determine when your time comes versus when you're hanging on by a thin thread and you have zero quality of life left that's the idea not sure i'm sold on it i'm kind of a spiritual person not sure it's our job to take a life, but again, I, I, I you know, I went through it with my mom. She passed with, uh, with, uh, without a lot of support when you know, she had to do not resuscitate. She clearly wasn't in any pain or any discomfort, uh, and she passed quietly because she wasn't really sick. She wasn't suffering, and you know, it wouldn't have made sense for her to have been, you know, put on a tube and tubes and pumps and things to keep her going for no real apparent reason. Right? She was just she was at her end of end of life stage. What we're talking about here in this particular situation is we're talking about mental health as an untreatable disease and that potentially people could apply for this made application, this medical assistance in dying based on incurable mental health. And I'm sitting here scratching my head and my beard and I'm thinking, what the hell is uncurable? What does uncurable mean? When I started, you know, for over four decades ago, um, when I started in this world, in this addiction and mental health support world and doing this kind of work. I worked at, at the Addiction Research Foundation and the Clark Institute for Psychiatry. But I also did a week, I did weekend shifts at the uh, Queen Street Mental Health Center, which is where uh, CAMH is right now, but much more beautiful buildings. It was a disgusting building. Uh, the care was you know, limited at best, but there are people that were in that facility, like a prison, if you will, where they were uncurable on, on uh, highly dosed medications, but they lived out their life like that. We didn't kill them. We didn't take away their breathing. And one would say, well, maybe that wasn't a life. Maybe if they had the choice, maybe they would have preferred to have death over life. Well, 
that's okay, except we're dealing with people, we're talking about people here that may not have the right capacity to make that decision. I'm trying to understand. I've had, I've had patients in my career that um, have not responded well to talk therapy or to any of the, the, the modalities, you know, DBT, CBT, uh, mindfulness, any of the other uh, invasive, you know, shock treatment and so on. There are other forms of treatments, right? Now they're looking at uh, different kinds of drugs as a, you know, hallucinogenic drugs to help, you know, snap people back, so to speak, to a place where they're healthier. You know, there's lots of options before you say it's uncurable. And if it's uncurable, does it mean it's fatal? And what does it mean for your mental health to be fatal? What's it mean for your mental health to be such that it's akin to a, God forbid, a cancer that's going to kill you because it's uncurable? What does uncurable mental health look like? I have no idea. I've worked with close to 3,800 patients in my career, 3,786 to be exact, in over four decades. I don't know what incurable is. I know what people, happens to people that don't respond. I know what happens when people get caught up in their substance issues and end up dying with overdoses. You know, I have mental health issues myself, OCD, ADD, anxiety disorder. I can't imagine that it would be unmanageable or uncurable. I don't use medications. You know, it's not true. I use CBD. But I, 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 don't, I don't use pharmaceutical medications. I, I use my skills. I use the skills I teach others. You know, I do the things I need to do. And when I can't get it under control, I just back away. I take a breath. I walk away. I find my space. I calm down and I come back. Right? Some days, not so easy. Some days, it takes a whole day. I have to cancel appointments and reset myself. But I'm an expert expert at taking care of myself and expert at taking care of others with this kind of stuff. I can't fathom the concept of incurable. It's such a slippery slope. I know, I, I know, I, I don't want to bore you and I'm ranting and I'm, you know, it, kind of this is if you're just joining us for the first time, like, who the hell is this guy? But seriously, when is mental health uncurable? And if it's uncurable, does it mean it's fatal? And at what point is someone's lack of quality life because I can take you to lots of places in this city and in this province where people lack a quality of life without drugs, without alcohol, but without a whole lot of other things. They would say that their life is uncurable, unchangeable, but I don't think they want to die. I'm not sure who the candidate is for this type of an approach. What's the criterion? How do you, how do you decide when, okay, their mental health is uncurable? Who gets to make that decision? Who draws that line? And how do they sleep at night? How do they actually go to sleep at night and say, I think I made the best choice? You know, when, when it's a physical situation and you know that someone's uncurable, it's, it's fairly straightforward for the most part. And even then, most people try to fight and fight and fight and fight until there's no possible result. And then, you know, they, they hope for the very best results in terms of quality of care and hospice care and so end of life care and whatever. You know, when it's, when it's hard enough to form somebody in this, in this country. If someone is suicidal and you want to get them formed, meaning taken off the street against their will for their own protection, it's almost impossible to prove to a justice of the peace that they need to be formed, form one, form two, there's various forms, to get them off the street to protect themselves. I can't imagine how you can take someone's life away because chances are they're not going to be involved in the vote. Coming up on the show, we've got so much more to do. We're dealing with Mark Barnes. He's the founder of a network of pharmacies. We're dealing with the opioid crisis in the construction industry. We're talking to Holly Gauvin, 
She's the, the uh, executive director of an organization in Thunder Bay dealing with the opioid crisis. Yeah, can you believe it? And we have a, a really cool guest. Her name, they're all cool guests, but her name is Stacy Talbot. She's an ex-copper and uh, she's uh, the founder of Ned's Wish. And she deals with uh, helping to take care of police dogs. Yeah, once they've retired, because apparently, you know, no one takes care of them, including the cities that they worked for, which I find really quite remarkable. And then when we come back after that big break, we have so much more stuff to do. But at the end of the show tonight, the last two segments from about 10.15 till close to uh, 11 o'clock, we're going to talk, or actually from about 10.30 to close to 11 o'clock, we're going to talk about coping with anxiety. We're going to do some real work. I've decided I'm not doing enough work in terms of helping you with the things that I have the skills and, this, and the experience to help you with. So we're going to spend a little time talking about anxiety since everyone seems to have it. And uh, hopefully that'll make a difference and help those out there that are suffering just a little. So when we come back, we're going to do more. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And good evening and welcome back. You're on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud, and I'm your host this evening. Thank you for joining us. And uh, lots of going on. You know, I appreciate you uh, sticking with us here this evening. I know you have other choices, and we're glad that you chose us. You know, of all the industries that are out there that um, have affected people with mental health, uh, addiction issues, substance abuse issues, and so on. Uh, it would appear to be that the construction workers uh, seem to be the most uh, affected. Uh, there was a study published recently in the Drug and Alcohol Dependence Journal in the United States, and it showed that construction workers are most likely of all occupations to use cocaine and misuse prescription opioids and so on, take them for non-medical purposes and whatever, you know, just self-medicating. The construction, mining, and extraction industries are also among those large sectors in the U.S., and I would say uh, probably the same here. Uh, the hazards of the work, falls, injuries, overexertion, being you know uh, isolated for people that are working in the up north uh, parts of the country, logging camps and so on. Uh, anyway, construction workers seem to be at risk, uh, higher risk uh, when it comes to uh, vulnerable work-related injuries and subsequent then overdose deaths from uh, poor drugs, bad drugs, using street drugs as opposed to the appropriate uh, medication if in fact you're still able to get that after your doctor says, no, you're done, should be enough. Uh, but hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, workers in the U.S. have issues um, here. Um, the numbers are also quite staggering. Uh, but NYU, the New York, uh, New York University, put together that study, and it, it really does, does, a, does a segmentation uh, of industries excuse me, that are mostly affected. Uh, in the Canadian article here, though, nearly one in three employees uh, die from an opioid overdose work in construction. So if you're looking at the coroner's reports and stats and such, we're finding that the majority of uh, one in three, 30%, 33% big number are affected by people that are specifically in the construction industry, according to, um, to Michael York. He's uh, the president of the Carpenters District of Council. Anyway, they put together uh, an organization years ago to help uh, the trades, uh, places called DeNovo, it's a 42-bed facility. It's basically a 12-step facility that provides residential care, uh, trying to do what they can do. And they're now they're really trying to focus the industry here, trying to focus on solutions around the misuse of uh, drugs, specifically uh, opioids. But you know the story goes far beyond that. Alcohol and marijuana have been misused in that industry forever. 
so naloxone, they're trying to get naloxone and on every site and people trained to use it. Uh, I'm fortunate to have a guest here with me this evening. His name is Mark, ba- Mark Barnes. He's the founder of a network of pharmacies in Ottawa called Respect RX, and uh, he's joining us this evening. Good evening, Mark. Good evening. Um, crazy stats, right, man? Like, um, so what side of the world do you see from the perch that you guys sit on in, in the facilities that you provide? Uh, so we're based in uh, Eastern Ontario. We have four locations in Ottawa, one in, in Cornwall. And we kind of started Respect Our Ex Pharmacy out of an overdose that actually happened. But it wasn't a regular community pharmacy with a normal regular prescription of fentanyl that was dispensed to a dying cancer patient. Uh, that cancer patient told sold, sold that fentanyl patch to a 19-year-old in our community who overdosed and died. And that was a decade ago. Wow. Wow. That was a decade ago. So what we decided to do then is that we found ourselves actually um, wanting to do more and more to prevent opiate overdose deaths, uh, to help people who are battling substance misuse in general. So we opened the first Respect Rx Pharmacy. And the reason why it's called Respect is that we felt at that time, a decade ago, the biggest thing missing uh, from people battling substance misuse, complex mental health was respect for their story, respect for their history, respect for their trauma. So we named our company Respect to make sure we wouldn't lose perspective. So now it's kind of our name. It's also our mission statement, right? What we learned early back then in those early days at, uh, at Respect was that we had to open early. We had to open early for the construction sector. We had to open every day for the construction sector. So really since we opened our day, our first location in 2013, we haven't closed since. And that is to support the, you know, the construction sector in general. So when you say you haven't closed, you're talking about opening like pre-construction hours and staying Correct. open late and weekends and stuff. Give you me got, an idea. You got it. 365. Yep. Uh, 365, including Christmas. And we open at 6.30 a.m. to make sure that we are available for construction sector before they had to work. How are you any different than a methadone or suboxone clinic? Well, you know, really, when you think about that, yeah, that's one option. That's opioid substitution therapy. I think what makes us different is that, you know, we treat the whole person. It's a holistic care model. So it's not just, hey, here's your methadone, have at her, see you later. It's more like, what do you need? We, what do you need? We kind of stop trying to find success for our clients. If it is abstinence, great. If it's, you know, on a uh, opioid substitution therapy like methadone, suboxone, great. If it's getting you better every day than you were the day before, that's our goal. But we stop tr- defining, res- you know, uh, the success for our clients and let them define their own success. And I think that's what's missing uh, when we look at the construction sector and specifically. You, you mentioned the statistic at one in three deaths are in the construction sector, and that's of people employed. Like you know, the whole the total number of deaths in Ontario this year around the opiate crisis will probably be close to three thousand. You know, twenty eight, twenty nine hundred potentially. Yep. But all the employed individuals, yep. I mean, there's yep. slightly over 50%. Of those 50%, one in three are in the construction sector. That's a large swoosh of one industry. So we, sure. we don't define success. We, know, we say, hey, we need to get you back to work. I mean, I love inpatient residential programs. And I think they're wonderful. But it's kind of like I always equate it to getting on The Bachelor, right? I look wonderful <laughs> if you put me a, on top of a, okay. you know, the yeah. Grand Canyon in a hot air balloon. I want, I want people to get well in their own environment at yeah. work okay. and be supported so, by their industry. That's who we are. Okay. I think that's great. But let me tell you that there are people that need residential care. I see hundreds a week in virtual care in their own environment, working from home or living at home. Um, I'm all over it. I, I think what you're saying makes a ton of sense. Uh, but you know, we need all of the aspects. It can't just be, you know, it's hard for a lot of people that have deep mental health issues, uh, getting clean and sober in an environment that's already toxic for them. It takes a lot of quick time learning, as you know, to try to yeah. get your, get your stuff together. 
uh, to be able to go back to work the next day. So oh, absolutely, I, I, I think I think what you're saying makes tons of sense. I don't know where the heck you came from, brother. But you're definitely my kind of guy, um, you know. No, because I'm I'm about I'm about quality of life, right? Like you know, like you say, you stop defining what success is for your patients. Um, that's brilliant. I wish more people in our industry would say that. I do the same thing in my practice. I, right. It's not my job to tell you what your win is. What's the win going to look like for you? Exactly. You define the win, and let's get there, right? If well, I don't like if I, if I don't like it, I don't jump on side. Right? Well, healthcare has to realize that we work for them. Like you know, yeah, we stop. Man. You know, yeah, man. like we got we got to stop saying, "Hey, do what I say," and yeah. start saying, "What do you want, man?" Yeah. Like, don't you tell me what to do on Friday night, and I'm not going to tell you. But how can I make you better tomorrow than today? And when you're ready, I'm here for you. And if we have that perspective, you know, it meets them where they are, not just physically, but also mentally. And uh, that's a huge gain in gaining respect. That's why we call our place respect. It's a holistic, it's a holistic care model where, you know, we have a, we have a, a quick, I guess in society in general, especially, I think this, you know, those last two years have been rough. We judge people quickly. Yeah. You know what? I could not walk one day in the shoes of my clients, my patients. Yeah. yeah. Um, they are soldiers. Yeah. Every single day as they battle their, their, their complex mental health, you know, the substance is one thing. I don't care what you use, why you use it is what we got to get behind here. Oh and why God. you use that substance is usually trauma informed. It's, you know, it's uh, whether it's a sexual assault, a loss of a job, a, abuse in a work site, um, yeah. you know, physical PTSD from military service, whatever. You know, you're, you're listening in on my sessions. I know you are because you're no. making that you've taken, dude, the words are right out of my mouth. You know, <laughs> I, it, honestly, I don't care about what you I tell the family and the parents. I'm not interested in what the substances they use. I'm interested in why they use them. Yeah. Uh, I, again, dude, I don't know where you came from, but you and I got to stay friends for sure uh, <laughs> because I love where you're going and what you're doing. And uh, so when, real quick, we only got a couple of minutes left and we got to come back on because I got hours I could do with you. Um, the, 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 when you talk about the holistic model, so in your clinic, you have uh, therapists, I assume, doctors, nurses. What the, what is it? So like? we are the pharmacy, right? So I'm a I understand. Yep. I'm just a community pharmacist. Yep. Um, attached to us at every location, we try to find individuals that we have the same like-minded individuals that have the same respect. So we found a group of, of, of physicians and nurses and organization called Recovery Care. They work alongside us. I don't own it. I'm a pharmacist. I mean, I'm busy enough. Yeah. They yeah. they operate independently. Yeah. They do their thing, but they have yeah. the same care model. Open doors, come in early, let's get you well so you can get back to work. So we found those, and then that wasn't enough still. You know, that really wasn't enough. What we wanted to do then is we wanted to do outreach, whether it be make a mobile van, go to encampments, oh maybe God. construction sites, maybe housing. Absolutely. So what we tried, we, we, we started a nonprofit organization called Pathways Recovery. We That's in its infancy. We don't know what that even looks like yet, but we know that, you know, the free seminars are provided every day to the construction sector, whether it's vitamins for, for seniors who are, who are marginally housed, whether it's you know, rides to treatment or whatever it looks yeah, like for yeah, you. Yeah. That's what we are doing. So our organization is actually kind of three in one. It's a nonprofit that kind of does all the outreach and the holistic part of it. We have a clinic that's attached to us at Recovery Care, and then we have Respector X Pharmacy. Well, I, uh, I'd i love to have you on for, for another time for sure to talk about more. And I'd love to talk to you after uh, offline. Uh, you, get, you and I have to hook up for sure. Uh, I just love everything you're saying, and I want to figure out a way to help. Um, but and certainly have a platform here on this radio show with me to uh, talk about things as you need to. We're going to have you come back for sure. I'm talking to Mark Barnes. He's founder of a network of pharmacies called Respect RX. The guy is, it's not just in the name, it's in the guy. You can hear it in everything he says. Um, definitely one of the one of the winners and one of the people out there that we need to have and try to duplicate what he's doing around the country to see if we can save more lives. Mark, we'll have you back. We'll also be back to join you all in just a minute. You're on the road to recovery. Yonabud. 640 Toronto.
Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back. Thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, the morning, the evening is just flying along here, and uh, we got some continually good stuff to talk about. Uh, if you don't know where you are, you're on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud at 640 Toronto, and we're talking about ways to help people get out the other side of the stuff that bugs them. You helping them, we help them, they help us, we help each other. That's kind of what this is all about. And constantly we're looking through, you know, different forms of news and media to see, you know, come up with ideas of things to talk about that really do make sense and we think make a difference uh, in the world and certainly in the world of recovery for people that are trying to manage their mental health and addiction. Uh, Harm reduction uh, issues um, is a big deal in Canada. We have a serious problem with opioid crisis and just alcohol and drug uh, substance use in general. Uh, There's an organization in Thunder Bay, which, by the way, is really getting hammered. You know, if it was a tornado or uh, if it was a tornado or a flood, the government would be sending in troops. They're having a really hard time uh, in that area with people that are suffering um, opioid overdoses. And the staff in an organization called Elevate NWO, it's a community-based harm reduction organization in Northwestern Ontario. You can imagine that they're, they must be like crazily busy all the time. Um, the further north we seem to get, the harder that seems to be to get the help for the people that need it. But fortunately, people like this organization are intact to do that. Their executive director, Holly Govin, uh, is here with us this evening. We're going to get to her in just a second. But it's suspected that 118 people died from opioid-related overdoses in their area, in their neighborhood. Uh, on a per capita basis, that's more than even in Vancouver, which is where we call the, the epicenter of the opioid crisis in this country. Maybe Thunder Bay is going to take that to new title, unfortunately. It's not something you want to win. Um, but I'm concerned about uh, a whole bunch of stuff here as it relates to this. And um, we're going to talk with... Um, our, our new friend, Holly Govan here right now. She's the executive director, as I said, of Elevate NWO in Thunder Bay. Holly, thanks for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me. Um, there's so many things I want to talk about. We're going to have limited time, so I'm going to try to get through the stuff that I think is probably most prevalent right now. Um, the concept of safe supply. I, we've been talking to people off and on on this show in Vancouver, Alberta, um, you know, it seems to be all over the all over the map in terms of uh, what safe supply is all about. We just got off the, uh, just interviewed uh, a pharmacist in Ottawa who pro- helps provide safe, you know, safe drugs, so to speak, in, in a pharmaceutical environment, get them the help that they need. Um, what are we, how are you managing, man? Like, the, 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 you, I don't think you can come up with a safe enough supply to keep up with the tainted stuff. Yeah, it's, um, uh, a never ending uh, a crisis here. So we're in a, a, a multitude of uh, crises here. We're still, you know, fighting our way through COVID. We're still fighting our way through an HIV outbreak. Um, oh, we have uh, overdose numbers, as you mentioned, you know, higher than Vancouver. Yeah, we also yeah. have uh, double the homelessness per capita that uh, that Ottawa has and even higher numbers than Toronto have. Um, our food costs are high. And so we're all, all we're seeing is uh, just the end results of poverty uh, all over the place. And so uh, this, the fact that we we have so much substance use occurring here is is no surprise. It's all about coping uh, and people are coping the very best they can. Um, but they are in uh, very high risk situations uh, because our supply is just 
so very toxic right now. Um, safe supply is truly the only way uh, forward. Uh, uh, we're dying here. We're literally dying literally. here. Literally. 118 people that you talked about are people yeah. who uh, who frequented our place uh, and were members of our of our Elevate community and family. And uh, it's had devastating effects uh, across our community. And you know what it turned to? More substance use. Right. right. As people then cope with the loss and the bereavement. So it's uh, it's a it's a real struggle. What's uh, where's the Ontario government and all of Dougie's money? <laughs> Where, where's the 300, 350 odd million that uh, his uh, his uh, his him and his crew decided to put towards mental health and addiction and and and, and, to, and you know, and, and uh, what's his name? Uh, Minister Tabolo is all over, you know, I've talked to him many times. Yeah, we're putting money where it's needed and more beds, more help, more therapy. Clearly, that's not the case. I mean, this is uh, this is a tsunami of mental health and uh, addiction devastation. Um, why is no one stepping up? It's a hard sell. Um, you're talking about people engaging in what is still and what continues to be criminal behavior. Uh, and so it's a very hard sell, uh, uh, politically speaking. We have seen uh, uh, some support come through both uh, federally and provincially um, uh, to help out with some of our addiction programs. Uh, but I, but I, I'm personally struggling with it because it's, uh, it seems to be the programs that are interested uh, in people who are um, ready to engage in programming and services to end their use. And that's just not the story for everybody. Yeah, not every yeah, person yeah. who uses substances yeah. will recover and not yeah. every person uh, 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 wants to recover. Some people are unwilling, some people are unable. And at the end of the day, it all comes back to human rights. And who are we uh, as Canadians if we're not supporting a person's right to, to what happens to their body, right? And what happens to their mind. And we still need need to provide them with housing we still need to provide them with food yeah. and still by god have to provide them with dignity uh, and and that's just not happening the focus is on abstinence-based programming yeah. or appears yeah. to be on abstinence-based programming yeah. um, and we really really need to start to see a shift uh, across uh, the spectrum of services that also uh, balances that uh, on the other end of conti the continuum with people who are you know, as I said, unwilling, unable to to yeah. make those changes, but still be supported with dignity and still have access to those basic things that they need to live. Um, I got a lot of questions. I'm going to try to get through a few more, but uh, I know it's not easy stuff to talk about quickly. Uh, if you're just tuning in, by the way, I'm talking to Holly Govin. Uh, she's the executive director of Elevate NWO in Thunder Bay, trying to save lives every day. Uh, we just, our previous guest was a pharmacist in Ottawa. And I don't know if you heard um, uh, Holly, but uh, he was talking about, you know, it's not our job. We have to stop as, as healthcare providers and, and, and those that are helping in the mental health and addiction field. We have to stop defining what success is for our patients and colleagues and clients. I think, they, and I think that's where the dignity comes from. I think they have patients, my patients, your patients, they all have to decide you know, what, what do they want? So are they looking for, you know, their, their intention is to be on methadone or suboxone for the rest of their lives, or are they looking for a safe supply because they have no intention uh, of giving up at this point, their mental health state or their, their, their readiness for therapy just isn't there. You can't force that, right? As you know, 
So my concern is, you know, I've always been talking, I've always talked in the harm reduction field about testing. Um, so I'm just going to flip there for a second. Uh, I, I mean, I, you could get me started here and go on forever, but the, the, the ability to do, to do some testing before use. Um, are you set up for that? Can you test the stuff to see how horribly tainted it is? Or will it really matter to the people you're working with? Uh, so that's definitely a two-part answer. So the first part is that it's it's challenging. So we do have that access to that uh, support in our, our community. Um, the problem is that you have to burn off a fair amount of the substance that you've just yeah. spent a lot of money on. And so yeah. some people unwilling, unable uh, yeah. to do so. So that's one and there is an element of, of, you know, gambling, you know, that yeah, comes with yeah, it, that it's, yeah, it's yeah. I, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Yeah. I, I want to use, I want to get out of pain mentally. And if, and if this is the one that kills me, so be it. Yeah. There's a, almost a yeah. fatalistic sort yeah. of uh, acceptance that comes yeah. from it. And that is coming from people who have been really broken by systems yeah. who vilify them. And so, you know, we really need to change that narrative. And you're so right about uh, the people define what success is for them. We staged intervention last year um, around housing for people using substances. So we have harm reduction housing units. Substance use cannot be used against you or used as an excuse to kick you out. Uh, and the success rate is absolutely incredible. Are they still using Absolutely. Are they better tenants? Absolutely. Yeah, but are they? But here's the deal. Here's where I come from. We only got about a minute left, but here's where I come from. And I'll give you one last question. Um, you know, if if you're not robbing, stealing, and cheating, then it's you know you're probably already better off, right? So yeah, uh, that's a, you know it's a big keep out of the prison system, keep out of uh, out of uh, local jails. You know, keep away from violence and potential for that kind of physical harm. Really quick though. Um, what's your plan going forward? Like, I mean, you got to work every day. You're running a, uh, you know, an organization that's, you know, literally saving lives. Where, just personally, just we got about thirty seconds. Where do you find the energy and the momentum to do it in the midst of something that really sucks right now? Uh, I would say I'm inspired every day by the people that we serve. Uh, if they're willing to keep fighting, uh, then then who am I not to fight along their side? Holly Govan, Executive Director of Elevate NWO in Thunder Bay, and it seems to be a night of dealing with great people. She's certainly one of them. Uh, thank you for joining us. We'll definitely have you come back. So we're talking about, uh, we're just finishing the discussion about opioid deaths and opioid overdose and safe drug supply and so on. Imagine if all of a sudden your milk in the fridge could kill you and you didn't know which one it was. And if you bought milk from the local store, you're better off than if you bought it from the guy around the corner who had it on the truck because it was cheaper. Chances are, if you didn't have the money, you'd buy the cheaper milk, even though potentially it could kill you. We'll be back. we got more stuff to do. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Okay, and welcome back to the show. Boy, time flies when you're doing good stuff and having fun. I don't know how much fun you're having because we're not really talking about fun stuff per se, but it's important that we get together and talk about this stuff as a community and as a society um, because it makes a difference. It makes a difference for those that are listening. It makes a difference for those that are suffering. And uh, it certainly helps me if that helps you at all. Um, it helps me a lot. So if you're on the road to recovery, if you don't know where you are, I'm Yona Bud, your host on 640 Toronto and welcome to our show. Uh, I, I read an article that really touched me. It goes like this. Meet Major. He was a very good cop. Now he's retired and expensive. And then I go on and I read, okay, so now I'm talking about now we're talking about a 72-pound German Shepherd, Belgian uh, Melanose mix. 
uh, and uh, piercing caramel gaze. Like it describes this beautiful animal. And I'm looking at my little Siggy at you know, all six and a half pounds and I'm going, oh my, he only wishes he could be a, a police dog of some sort. But we're talking about animals. We're talking about dogs. We're talking about people with a life, with a heartbeat. We're talking about, you know, I consider uh, fluffy people and, and those with four legs, still little people, uh, even though they don't speak, they certainly can communicate. Uh, tonight is all about what happens to those police dogs that put their life on the line every day they're usually sent in ahead of their handlers or the police officers that are in fact looking after them. And they put, they go and do what they got to do. They find the bad guys, they find dead bodies, they sniff out bombs, certainly do an excellent job of finding drugs everywhere in places you could never think of. And they certainly work really diligently and very hard at making sure that their handlers and the other police people, the other human police people on the premises are safe as well. They get old, right? And probably a dog that would live 12 to 15 years may only live 10 or 12, maybe only eight or 10 in this high risk environment. But at some point they got to retire. And then where do they go? Well, they're going to they go to people like my guests and I'm going to introduce her in a minute. Her name is Stacy Talbot. Uh, we're going to tell you how cool she is and what she does. Uh, but what I'm talking about is we're talking about this dog major. Okay. His veterinary bills were nor north of $2,000, $23 a pill for this and for that. Like I got little Siggy. He cost me, he cost me a grand, a, a grand a year, thousand bucks a year. And, he, and he's never sick and he's never been in combat, but just to keep him healthy and injected and, you know, all the things he needs to keep him, uh, you know, his, his, uh, his system functioning and so on. It costs me $1,000 for a dog that's just a normal everyday dog, right? Who pays for all this for these retired dogs? Who takes care of them? Well, it's people like my friend, Stacey Talbot. She's going to join us right now. She's the founder of Ned's Wish, a first in Canada charity that helps cover veterinary costs for retired police officers and military dogs. And by the way, she was a former RCMP superintendent. And I told her when I met her, she's the coolest cop, ex-cop I've ever met. Welcome to the show, Stacey. Well, thank you so much for having me. I uh, I just couldn't be more pleasured to be able to speak with you guys in your community today on this very important topic that we have. So it's a real treat to be able to uh, have a few words and, and just tell you a little bit about my sincere passion and uh, admiration for these uh, hardworking animals. Uh, I don't really think the community maybe even truly understands what they bring in terms of law enforcement. And, you know, you mentioned a few things of it, but these dogs, there are, you know, for families that have lost um, children that have gone missing, um, seniors that have walked away from their um, care facilities or their homes. Um, and, you know, I can't tell you, there's so many stories of our dogs that have you know, been able to locate people when, you know, they wandered away and, you know, through climate or hypothermia or things like that, that we've, you know, they've saved their lives. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then from that, then you also look at the law enforcement side of it, where they are trying to track down people that have committed some sort of an offense um, and be able to locate them. 
And then they go on, you know, in my career, I also saw how much we have serious offenses where we have to find those small articles or pieces of evidence, we would call them in court to be successful. You know, I did a lot of homicide work and, and so being able to find a murder weapon or be able to track and correlate all the evidence to, to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt what happened is key. And then my admiration, um, just got even more as I became a critical incident commander. And when we have those really high risk calls yeah. um, where even our own police officers need assistance, you know, that's where the dog comes in as well again. So that, cause what the community may or may not understand is that we use them if, if one of our um, individuals that we're dealing with, and sometimes, you know, those individuals we want to keep as safe as everybody else. We want them some of them are dealing with some mental health issues or yeah. whatever the case may be. So we want them to be safe. We never want to have to put ourselves in a situation or have to deal with anything um, other than the most least amount of force having to be used. And this is where the dogs come in because they can help us apprehend and deal with these people and locate these people in as safe as manner possible. So, you know, police dogs are an invaluable resource in keeping our community safe. And, um, the flip side to that, as you mentioned, is that, you know, what happens when they retire? They've had years of training, years of hard work, jumping in and out of a vehicle, yeah. um, you know, the the cruciate ligaments, the teeth issues, the back issues, yeah. um, you know, they deal with all these things. And what really changed for me um, when I started Ned's Wish is that veterinary medicine has just, I mean, I would argue in some cases that veterinary medicine is equally, if not more advanced in some ways as human medicine. I would agree. And all the diagnostic skills that you need in order to properly find out what's going on with an animal um, are just really expensive. Like, you know, unfortunately, it's not covered by healthcare and these type of things. So just to find out what's going on with an animal and something that maybe could easily be rectified can sometimes run you into the thousands of dollars. So I'm going I'm, I'm to cut you off a little bit because I have more questions and I don't mean to be rude because it's not who no. I am. But I, 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 so first thing I want to do right now, since we're on the air and there's tens of thousands of people listening, how can people make a donation? Because I think like me, most people don't even know what happens to them. I assume that they're covered by their police department till they pass. Clearly, that's not the case. That's why you're here. How can people donate to help? Oh, they can do a number of different things. All they need to go to is the website, uh, www.nedswish.com. Um, and we have a donate page there. There's different ways they can donate. They can donate via e-transfer, via PayPal, Canada Helps. Um, they can do different initiatives. They can do any kind of little fundraising they want to do in their community and let us know. They can go to Facebook. Um, there's, you know, it's pretty much your imagination is wide open. There's things that we need, uh, silent auction items if we're having fundraisers. Yeah. So it, it really is, you're only limited by your imagination as to how you can contact us and, and help us out in some way or some fashion. So people always say to me, you know, wouldn't it be cool to have a bomb sniffing dog or, you know, some of my patients, once they get clean and sober say, well, wouldn't it be cool to have a drug dog? Um, you know, cause that's how I got busted. Uh, but you know, on a serious note, how did, is it possible? We only got a couple of minutes left, but, um, is it possible for people to adopt these pets, these, these retired, uh, superheroes, or do they generally go with someone in the service like you or their handler? 
It's generally speaking, they will stay with their handler or somebody, um, a trusted family or somebody that has some experience in handling them. It, you're right. Everybody is like, oh, I'd love to have one of these. But you have to realize that these dogs have been born and bred into service and they're not like your normal dog. They have triggers. They have things that, you know, just like humans, somebody rings a doorbell, you, your own, you know, you get nervous about something. These dogs are highly trained. And so we really want to make sure that they're placed and they stay with people that know how to be able to handle them. They, they will take over your house um, if, if you let them. And, you know, that's why they don't come up for adoption. So yeah, that's, I'm glad you touched on it because Ned's wish, they come up very, very few. We do have a long waiting list, but they really need to find the right home and people that have that experience in being able to deal with them. So if you weren't retired, you think you could have done this? Well, I started this well, I was, you know, a few years from retirement, but what I love about it now is that I'm retired and I can just spend so much more time. Ned's wish is finally, we're, you know, thanks to awesome folks like you and inviting us on here, we're, we're being able to be a little bit more recognized and get the word out and um, being able to help obviously more retired heroes with their medical well-being after they've served their communities for so many years. I just think it's, I just think it's incredible. And I'm so happy to know that there's at least somebody out there looking after these types of people. I got these types of pets. The thing I, I keep calling them people because they are, I mean, they're like, they act like people. I see them on TV. I know some friends of mine who used to, to handle uh, dogs in the, on the Metro force here uh, with the canine unit. I mean, you know, I'd go visit them. These, these pets, these dogs, these service, uh, these officers um, are very responsive and very communicative and, uh, they're just like little people, I swear. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. There's so much more we could do. We'll definitely want to hear more about what you're doing. But if you're out there and you're listening right now, it's called Ned's Wish, N-E-D, Ned's Wish. Uh, they're looking for money. They're looking for help. They're looking for you to do something, maybe uh, some kind of lemonade stand with the kids, raise some money for these retired police dogs. Maybe you'll even get a picture of them in action or in their uniform. I'm sure that uh, Stacy will help you out. This is Yona Bud. 640 Toronto, you're on the road to recovery. We'll be right back.